ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to the seventh season of Breakdown an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution produced with our partners at WSB Radio. This season, Judgment Call. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to AJCBreakdown.com. Follow us on Twitter at AJC Courts and at ReporterJCB. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our journalists and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. I would not wish this on anybody. I would not want wish either side. Um, and people say, well, life's not fair. And okay, well, maybe that's true. Life isn't always fair. But it doesn't necessarily have to be quite so hard. <laughs> you know. Um, I asked Officer Olson uh, what happened. And he stated uh, when he exited out the vehicle, uh, Anthony Hill came running toward him and started pounding on him. It is outrageous that you would say that Chip Olsen should be convicted of murder and face a life imprisonment based on a judgment being made in the course of these four seconds that he had to figure out how am I going to deal with this life-threatening situation. A reckoning is approaching for Chip Olsen. Olson was a DeKalb County police officer when he shot and killed Anthony Hill in 2015. Naked and unarmed, Hill was wandering around outdoors at an apartment complex. Olson was indicted for murder and fired from the force three years ago. He's been out on $110,000 bond ever since. One of Georgia's top defense attorneys is representing the former cop. On the other side, though, is a prosecutor with an instinct for the jugular. We'll give you a taste of his cross-examination style in just a minute. But first, welcome back to Season 7 of Breakdown, Judgment Call. You're listening to Episode 3. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Christian Boone. I cover law enforcement and public safety for the AJC. This season, we've also joined forces with our friends at WSB Radio. Now, about that prosecutor. Pete Johnson is the chief assistant district attorney of DeKalb County, Georgia, He's made a name for himself prosecuting death penalty cases in Atlanta. We saw Johnson in action last year during a lengthy pretrial hearing for Olson. The former officer had taken the stand to testify in his own behalf. Here's part of Johnson's cross-examination. came right at me and attacked me, is what you said. Isn't that correct? I believe so. Okay, he never touched you, did he? No. 
He never laid a hand on you, did he? No. He never kicked you, correct? No. He never punched you, did he? No. He never spit on you, did he? No. He never swung at you, did he? No. He never picked up something off the ground and threw it at you, did he? No. He never tried to spin around with some superhuman powers and cause a tornado to knock you back, did he? No. So Johnson isn't satisfied with doing this just once. He figured out how to ask the same question eight different ways, and he got the same no in response each time. And this was a pretrial hearing. There's not even a jury in the room for this. Now let's hear from Atlanta lawyer Chris Stewart. He has represented the families of numerous people killed by police officers. Here he does a good job of summing up the monumental legal challenge facing Chip Olson. He was naked. It was kind of hard to come up with, I was threatened by a naked dude that, was, that didn't have a gun. That's like, it's ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like, that's easier to prosecute and for a jury to kind of, like, come on, dude. You know, you can't use the big, black, scary guy who could have had something in his pockets thing, which is typically what you do. The defense, in this case, I'm sure is going to be arguing, oh, he was out of his mind and crazy, and you can't predict what a crazy person is going to do, but you're trained to handle those situations. You become officer, and you are know you're risking your life every day, which means you just can't shoot somebody immediately when you're scared or worried. But remember, we told you he has one of the top trial lawyers in the state. That would be the Don Samuel, defender of the famous, author of books on criminal procedure. Samuel says it's easy to second-guess Olson long after the fact. He says Olson was acting in self-defense. But Samuel knows that selling this to a jury of the former officer's peers won't be easy. So he developed a plan to stop the Olson prosecution before the case ever got to trial. Samuel and his team filed a pretrial motion to have the murder charges thrown out on self-defense grounds. The motion is for an immunity hearing. Normally, we'd have Breakdown's resident legal expert explain what an immunity hearing is. But our resident legal expert, Don Samuel, is the lead defense attorney for Chip Olson. Obviously, he can't exactly be Olson's legal expert and Breakdown's legal expert at the same time. So we'll have to forge ahead without him. In the hearing, Olson tried to show he was immune from prosecution because he was carrying out his normal duties and shot Hill in self-defense. An immunity hearing is sort of like a trial. There are witnesses and evidence and opening statements and closing arguments. But it's also quite different from a trial. As you know, in a trial, the burden of proof is on the prosecution. And the prosecution must prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. In an immunity hearing, the burden of proof is on the defense. And rather than clearing the very high bar of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, it must prove its case by a preponderance of the evidence. Think of the scales of justice. Beyond a reasonable doubt means that one side of the scale holds a feather, while the other side holds a stone. One side of the scale rises way up. The other side crashes to the floor. A preponderance of the evidence means that the weightier side of the scale prevails. If the other side has nothing, all you need is a feather to tip the scale in your favor. And there's one other big difference. No jury. The judge is the sole arbiter. Despite those advantages, the immunity hearing in Olson's case was full of risk. Olson would be on the stand and subject to the state's cross-examination. You've already had a taste of how that went. But if the risk was high, so was the reward. This was for all the marbles. If Olson's side could prove he was immune from prosecution, he would walk out of the hearing no longer facing a charge of murder and prison for the rest of his life. Superior Court Judge J.P. Boulay was assigned the Olson case. 
he scheduled the immunity hearing for May 2018. We've told you how unusual it is for a police officer to be charged in the shooting of a civilian. That's one reason the Olson case is so revealing. Not only is he facing a murder charge, he's also taking the stand to testify. It's rare to hear an officer describe in this kind of detail what's going through his head when he makes the decision to pull the trigger. So how would Olson respond to questioning? Would he appear sympathetic? Would he continue to insist that Hill attacked him? You can decide for yourself how he comes across. Here's Atlanta lawyer Lance LaRusso, who's defended numerous cops in use of force cases. He explains the law governing self-defense. So under Georgia law, a law enforcement officer or a private citizen can use deadly force to stop a forcible felony or to protect themselves or a third party from a forcible felony or from a serious bodily injury or death. Forcible felonies are things like kidnapping, murder, armed robbery, aggravated assault, aggravated battery, and other things like carjacking, robbery by sudden snatching. So that begs the question, what forcible felony was Anthony Hill about to commit? It's a question prosecutors are sure to ask and one the defense has been preparing for. Olson's lawyer, Don Samuel, has built his case largely on what could have happened. His answer? And when someone comes charging at you from 75, 100 feet away, comes charging at you at full speed, stark naked, um, and isn't cautioned by a gun pointing at him, and isn't concerned about the fact that there's um, you know, a policeman in a uniform, uh, I think any person would be reasonably scared of what's about to happen and would think that a forcible felony or serious bodily injury was about to occur. Samuel points out that the law plainly allows the use of deadly force when someone is defending himself. The law in self-defense is that anybody, and I emphasize anybody, that includes firemen, that includes policemen, that includes Marines, that includes, you know, an 80-year-old senior citizen. Anybody is allowed to use deadly force if it is reasonable to believe that he or she was about to receive, um, was imminently going to receive serious bodily injury. They're all treated the same. There's no duty to retreat. There's no duty to use some lesser force if, in fact, you believe you're going to receive serious bodily injury. Um, Everybody's entitled to use self-defense. So we've arrived at the immunity hearing. The defense will go first and the bedrock of his case quickly becomes apparent. Anthony Hill, the defense argues, was suffering from a particular kind of mental distress that day. Giselle Torres, the apartment manager, testifies that Hill was jumping up and down on the second floor landing outside her office. She was worried he was going to leap off into the pavement below. Pedro Castillo, the maintenance man we heard from in episode two, says Hill was acting strangely, saying things like, the devil is coming, I love you, mommy, and help me, help me. Hill's symptoms suggested a condition known as excited delirium, according to the defense. So what is excited delirium? It's a controversial but common defense used by police in excessive use of force cases. The defense calls Randall Murphy, a retired Kansas City police officer. He often testifies as an expert on behalf of law enforcement. Here he describes the signs of excited delirium. Naked, sweating, a raged look, and not compliant. It is uh, well known that they have superhuman strength and uh, resistance in any type of pain. 
So any type of uh, submission holds, come-along holds, or hand restraints or anything else would be fruitless. But is excited delirium real? It's not included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. That's the Bible of mental health professionals. It's also not in the latest publication of the International Classification of Diseases. But it has been accepted by the National Association of Medical Examiners and the American College of Emergency Physicians, and it's taught in classes taken by police officers nationwide. Excited delirium is said to be a byproduct of drug use or mental illness. Defense attorney Amanda Clark Palmer asked Murphy what could happen when a cop confronts someone with that condition. Well, too many adverse things. He could overpower the officer, take his weapon from him. Uh, He could, you know, continue on throughout the apartment complex with the weapon. Uh, There's nothing good that's going to happen if the officer loses control of the situation. There's also this unusual dynamic at play when a suspect is naked, he said. Uh, It's hard to grab something to gain control of someone who's sweating and uh, is without anything to grab onto to be able to take them to the ground or anything else. It's, it's very difficult. The prosecution wasn't buying that. Here's Assistant District Attorney Lance Cross questioning Murphy about Olson's decision to fire. One of the factors is the severity of the crime, is that right? Severity of the crime, yeah. What crime was Anthony Hill committing at this time? Uh, Public nudity? Well, uh, that, but uh, he was, it'd be disturbing the peace as well. The lady felt threatened in the in the office, and obviously you got to do something with a naked guy running through an apartment complex. You got to shoot? No. Okay. Murphy may have been a witness for the defense, but he ended up scoring points for the prosecution. That raised the stakes even higher for the cop at the center of this, Chip Olson, He'd never spoken publicly about the shooting. In the first two episodes of this podcast, you've heard from him. And that audio came from what he said at this immunity hearing. But there's more. Much, much more. Here's Don Samuel asking Olson about what was in his mind during the encounter. Were you scared? Yes, sir. Did you think you were being attacked? Yes, sir. Did you think he was going to cause you great bodily harm? Yes, sir, I did. Samuel then sought to establish what Olson didn't know about Hill. Do you know anything at that point, looking at it, do you, again, I don't mean to be facetious, but you don't even know anything about his medical condition? No. Do you know anything about whether he's using methamphetamine or heroin or is a veteran from Afghanistan? No. No, I don't know. You've heard the differing accounts of how Hill approached. Whether he was charging or trotting is in the eye of the beholder, be it Olson or the eyewitnesses. No one had a stopwatch out there. No video of the incident has turned up so far. But everyone agrees that Olson pulled out his weapon, yelled, stop, stop, and that Hill kept advancing. Did he ever, ever put his hands up in a surrender type of posture? No, sir. And when I say surrender, you know what I'm talking about. Straight up in the air. Straight up in the air. Did he ever do that? No, sir. Is there any lack of clarity in your mind about that? No, sir. Samuel ended his questioning. Now, it's the prosecution's turn. This is Breakdown. Breakdown. 
ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. The Cab District Attorney Sherry Boston inherited this case after defeating Robert James, the incumbent, in 2016. She assigned Pete Johnson to lead the state's team. Now let's get back to Johnson's cross. Much has been said about the time Olson had to react. But Johnson pointed out that Hill had even less time to respond to the officer's commands. You made the decision after you yelled stop just two times to shoot him two times, correct? Yes. In fact, I think your testimony was you yelled stop and there was maybe a second in between that and you shooting him, correct? Yes. So you basically gave him one second before you killed him, correct? Before I shot, yes. Johnson reminded Olson that he had been trained on how to deal with folks who suffer from mental illness. He'd also been trained on how to use his baton and pepper spray and how to engage in hand-to-hand combat. Okay. All of those things were at your disposal that day, right? Yes. But you chose to pull out a gun the minute you got out of the car, right? Yes. Hill was unarmed and Olson should have known it, Johnson said. For the record, Olson had already explained why he didn't use his pepper spray, baton, or taser. Hill was either too close or moving too quickly for any of them to work properly, Olson said. Then the prosecutor, Pete Johnson, indulged in some courtroom theatrics. Can you see my hands? I'm waving my hands in the air right now for the record. Yes. Do I have anything in them? I have time to look. No. Right. And in fact, I'm going to go all the way to the back of the courtroom with the court's permission, if that's okay. Got my arms waving around above my head for the record. Do I have anything in my hands? After looking at you, no, you do not. Okay. You had your eyes on that day, didn't you? <coughs> Excuse me? You had your eyesight that day, didn't you? Yes, sir. You could see Mr. Hill, couldn't you? Yes, sir. And in fact, aren't you taught, taught to focus in that kind of situation on the individual, correct? Yes. In other words, to see if they're armed, because that's your job. If he was armed, if he had a gun or a knife or was holding somebody or, or some other object, you'd want to know that, wouldn't you? Yes. Johnson is relentless, and he suggests that Olson has disregarded one of his fundamental responsibilities as a cop. Now, in your training from the cab under use of force, you'd agree that in the training under 4.6, it says the value of human life is immeasurable. Do you know that? Yes. And that one of the department's core value statements is the preservation of life. Officers must exhaust every means available of non-lethal force prior to utilizing deadly force. Are you familiar with that training? I believe so, yes. You did not exhaust every means available of non-lethal force prior to using deadly force, did you? I didn't have any other options in the three seconds I had to react to being attacked. It's self-defense. You'll notice that Chip Olson keeps repeating that he was being attacked by Anthony Hill. Most people might not see it that way since Hill never actually touched him. Well, let's turn to an authoritative source. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary says that to attack is to take aggressive action against a person or place. Now, here's more of Johnson's cross-examination of Olson. He had no weapons. You had an arsenal around your waist, and he had no weapons, and he was running towards you, 
with his hands up in the air. How is he going to hurt you? With my own weapon, perhaps? Perhaps. You pulled that weapon. You injected into the situation, didn't you? Yes, I did. You didn't have to, did you? Yes, I did. You had to pull your weapon? I was stopping an immediate threat to me. What threat is a naked running man? Impervious to pain, superhuman strength, unlimited endurance. Did you hear that? That's Olson giving a verbatim description of the excited delirium defense. Remember, this has become the go-to justification used by cops in excessive force cases. Did he have superhuman strength? Isn't he dead? He is dead, sir. Yeah, that's because of you and your actions, correct? I shot Mr. Hill, yes. Next, Johnson brings up Officer Anderson, and this time he goes too far. Now, you knew that Officer Anderson was coming at some point behind you, right? I knew there was a backup officer. You could have waited in your car for Officer Anderson, couldn't you? I could have. Well, why didn't you? Because that's not what police officers do. We will police call. officers murder people? Is that what they do? Objection, Your Honor, that's plain That was Judge Boulay weighing in. Johnson stays on the attack, and in the process, you get to hear Olson explain what was going through his head in these pivotal moments. So if someone is running through a parking lot and running at you and you yell at them to stop, and they don't stop, then you can shoot them, right? If they're at the front of my car and I have less than three seconds to react, and they're closing distance on me in the condition it was, based on my knowledge... I did what I did to defend myself. You were just okay using lethal, deadly force instead of trying something else, right? Counsel, I'm aware there's possibly other options that you may assume, but I believed I was about to get pummeled and pounded. With with what? With his fists? His feet? With, With what? He didn't attack you. Yes, he did, sir. Okay, when? When did he attack you? When he refused to stop in my commands unarmed, naked, and running at you, and you tell him to stop. By God, if he doesn't stop, I'm just going to kill him. That's, that's okay? Not in that regard, not the way. I would say in the situation that I encountered that day, at that moment, in those three seconds, that was the option I had. Winding down at last, Johnson confronts Olson with one of the strongest parts of the state's case against him. Remember Officer Anderson's testimony? that when he arrived, Olson said Hill came running and pounded on him. If the jury believes Olson lied about that, then his credibility is shot. Have you ever heard the term selective memory? I've heard the term. I don't know what it means. You seem to remember every little detail about this, yet you don't remember talking to Officer Anderson. Doesn't that seem a bit selective? No, sir. I can only tell the truth. Complete of what I remember. Is it because you lied to Officer Anderson you don't want to remember it? I did not lie. And that's pretty much how Olson's immunity hearing went. Under direct examination from his own lawyer, he did fine. But under cross-examination, he was a human pinata. Veronica Waters of WSB Radio joins us now. Veronica, we were both in the courtroom watching this unfold. What was your take? 
So he's clearly not in a comfortable space as he sits in that witness box. He is um, his, his body language is tight. And if you listen to it over time, you can hear the changes in his breathing. When you talk about him being on the defensive, his voice sometimes catches. You might catch um, what sounds even like a tremor sometimes as he's breathing and waiting for the questions to come through. And he's he's clearly not comfortable. And I think he's trying to present evidence of a man who is very controlled in his um, actions and reactions and trying to show and paint this picture that he was rational at the time. So what was your overall take on Olson's testimony? I mean, how damaging was it? Is it repairable? Robert Olson didn't do himself any favors. He was unbelievable. What did did you find about his testimony that was not believable? He put down too many obstacles in his own story for him to get around. I didn't know what his intentions were. Well, then you didn't have any reason to believe that Anthony Hill was going to attack you. I didn't know what he was going to do. Well, why didn't you sit in your car and wait? I remember so much about that moment. Well, why don't you remember lying to your backup? He comes across as a man who is trying to tell a story that's going to explain this, but the story just has too many holes in it. He comes across basically as a trigger-happy officer. Anthony Hill's mother, Carolyn, attended the immunity hearing. She was eager to hear what Olson would say and to watch him as he said it. That was so hard because he already said my son was pounding on him. He changed that story to my son was attacking him. And then he felt threatened for his life. And it's hard to sit there when someone's lying and you know they're lying. You just want them to be honest and take the consequences and go on. It drained me. Why would you lie? A grown man. But I realize he's scared. He's trying to get off. But still, didn't you understand if you would just admit to it? Maybe the consequences wouldn't have been as bad. You know? Uh, miss, I was terrified. His son came towards me. I killed him. The outcome was still been the same. I still would have forgave him. He still had to go court, but it wouldn't have been so much easier. The final witness for the prosecution was Greg Webb, an instructor at DeKalb's Police Academy. He teaches cops how to respond to situations like the one Chip Olson faced. Webb testified that when dealing with a mentally ill, an officer should always try to de-escalate the situation. Unfortunately, we don't have audio from Webb's testimony, but here's what he said. If they're not fighting or attacking or hurting themselves or someone else, then we try to maintain a state of calm and a state of peace, Webb said. He added that a suspect's failure to obey commands should not be interpreted as a threat, especially if that person is unarmed. Olson would have been better off remaining in the squad car and waiting for backup, as long as Anthony Hill wasn't posing a threat to anyone, Webb testified. And at this point, the only person on the grounds of the Heights of Shambly apartment complex who said they felt threatened by Hill was Chip Olson. Here's Prosecutor Pete Johnson again from the hearing. A Signal 22, nude, unarmed, is running toward you. There are no weapons in the area for that person to possibly pick up, and they get to within five feet of you, and you've yelled, stop twice. Are you then, you know, would you then shoot that person twice? Webb's response? Based upon those facts and circumstances, I would not. Webb went on to say Olson's pepper spray, taser, and baton were all viable alternatives to lethal force. But under cross-examination by Don Samuel, Webb said that DeKalb officers receive only one hour of training on use of force per year. One hour. Is that sufficient? 
Olson's attorney suggested it wasn't. And Samuel also corrected one common misconception, that Olson could only use lethal force if he feared for his life. Not so. The law says he only needed to fear for his safety to pull the trigger. Webb later acknowledged that officers are taught that, quote-unquote, no policy can anticipate every situation officers might face. So it sounds like Webb testified that Olson did everything wrong, but on cross-examination, he said officers can't be held to strict guidelines of behavior because every situation is different. He could have been the expert for either side. Boulay was being asked to throw out the murder charges against Olson on the grounds he was justified to use lethal force and self-defense. So what's the law governing excessive use of force in cases involving police officers? Mr. Marley, the case is submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 876571, DeThorne Graham versus M.S. Connor. You may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. On November 12, 1984, DeThorne Graham was not a convict or a criminal. He was not a pretrial detainee. Indeed, he was not even a formal arrestee. That's a recording of the 1989 arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of Graham versus Connor. Most legal scholars say this case set an important precedent that's still followed today. In 1984, DeThorne Graham, a diabetic from Charlotte, North Carolina, was having an insulin reaction. He called on a friend to take him to the store to get some orange juice to counteract it. When Graham got to the store, there was a long line, so he rushed out and headed to a friend's house instead. Charlotte police officer Marion Connor saw Graham run in and out of the store and found it suspicious. So he followed the car, pulled it over, and told Graham and his friend he wanted to check with the store to see what happened. Graham, apparently in a panic, ran around the car a couple of times and then sat down on the curb. A police officer then rolled Graham over and cuffed his hands behind his back. He ignored pleas from Graham's friend to get him some sugar. When Graham asked officers to look in his wallet for a diabetic decal tag, they threw him headfirst into the squad car. Even when a friend brought orange juice for Graham, police refused to let him have any. Finally, police found that Graham had done nothing wrong at the store, and they let him go. During the encounter, Graham suffered a broken foot, cuts on his wrists, a bruised forehead, and a hurt shoulder. Graham's lawsuit against Officer Connor and the Charlotte Police ultimately made it to the highest court in the land. The court's unanimous decision said excessive use of force cases should be analyzed under an objective reasonableness standard. In other words, would an officer, faced with the same circumstances, reasonably use the same physical force? Here's Atlanta lawyer Lance LaRusso explaining what the decision means. The United States Supreme Court said that we judge an officer's actions from that of a reasonable officer, not a reasonable person, because we know officers receive more training. The other thing is the Supreme Court said we don't judge officers in 2020 hindsight from the safety of a judge's chambers. We look at the fact that they're forced to make split-second decisions under rapidly changing environments. So when we look at Graham versus Connor, there's, there's three stakeholders, if you will, in that decision. One is the citizen who has a right to go about their business if they are not violating the law, to be unobstructed in their efforts. The second is the government that has its right to enforce its laws. Sometimes the enforcement of laws requires the use of force. And the third is the officer that has a right to go to work and do their job and come home without being beaten or injured. 
By the way, when Graham's case returned to trial, a North Carolina jury ruled in the cop's favor. At the hearing, Belay also applied Georgia law. It says people can use lethal force when they reasonably believe it's necessary to prevent death or great bodily injury, like a forcible felony. If the defense could convince Belay that's what happened when Anthony Hill ran at Olson, the judge could then grant Olson immunity and dismiss the murder charges. But would he? Next, on Breakdown. Will Olson's gamble pay off? And why are judges in DeKalb County suddenly dropping this case like a hot potato? Just a roller coaster. Just a complete roller coaster. You're like, what's going to happen next, right? The situation with Judge Boulay was, really? Like, what's that? What is going to happen next? I'm Bill Rankin. I'm Christian Boone. Thanks for joining us again on Breakdown. You've been listening to Breakdown, reported and narrated by Bill Rankin and Christian Boone. Produced by Shannon McCaffrey. Edited by Richard Hallex. Sound designed by Shane Backler at WSB Radio. Original music composed and recorded by Bo Emerson and Anthony Hill. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Monica Richardson, Sean McIntosh, Brad Schrade, Pete Corson, Pete Spriggs, Chris Camp, Veronica Waters, and all the great people at the AJC. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous six seasons of Breakdown. And of course, thanks so very much for listening. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.